0: Uh, If you have a Bible with you, turn into Galatians chapter 3. Before we look at the passage, let me remind you why we bother doing this, why we look at the scriptures, this one in particular, but all of the Bible. There's an assumption behind this letter and behind the whole Bible that there is a God who gives life, who rescues us, from our despair, from misery, from hopelessness, from the evil in the world and the evil that's in our hearts, and that this God is the only pathway to joy and happiness that we all want. And so that's why the content of the Bible matters more than anything that's trending on social media or the news because life is only found in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And He is the subject not only of Galatians, but of the whole Bible. So that's why we look at it. That's why it's relevant for us. And today we're looking at Galatians again in chapter 3, which is an extended um, intervention by the Apostle Paul in the lives of people that he knew that he had preached the gospel to, who had become Christians, who had formed churches. And then there was somebody who came along behind that with a different teaching, a different gospel, that was unraveling the whole thing and corrupting them. And so this letter is to try and bring them back to the truth of the gospel. And as a result of that, we have it preserved for us today. So would you follow with me as we read Galatians chapter 3, Verses 1 through 6. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you have preserved for us in writing the truth of your gospel, the way of salvation, the way to be made right with you, the way to know that we have a great future and a great present. We thank you for preserving it for us in this letter, but we need your help because like the Galatians, we are swayed, We are tossed to and fro by winds of doctrine and different messages that are out there, and we lose sight of the truth. Maybe we never believed it to begin with. And so we need Your Spirit right now to to open our eyes again. As, As You were doing with the Galatians then, we ask You to do it again now for our joy. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned that this letter is an intervention. It's an urgent but loving attempt by the apostle Paul to turn people back to believing the true gospel of Christ, and so it has all the passion that you would expect in an intervention, uh, where you don't dance around the issues. You got to go right to the right to the heart of it, right to the jugular. Say some things that are direct. Some things that might even be offensive. Um, but it's it's too urgent to just kind of dance around it. You got to say the hard thing, um, and that's what you see Paul doing here. He says, "Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you?" And, and again, in verse three, "Are you so foolish?" That's not the kind of language that you use in a normal normal counseling situation. Day by day, you know, somebody comes to you for, like, help with parenting or I've got this relational issue going on. You don't say, you fool. What's wrong with you? But that's basically what Paul is saying. i got to get your attention. You need a wake-up call. He says you're bewitched. You're under a spell, other, other versions say. It's like something has taken over your mind. You used to be clear thinking, everything was going well, and then all of a sudden you became a different person. And so there needs to be, the spell has to be removed. It has to be dealt with. So what is the spell that came over them? Well, we learned what it was in the first two chapters. Paul had told them the gospel, which is that Christ died for your sins, and you will be forgiven. Every bad thing you've done or said or thought or will do or say or think, you will be forgiven all of it. You will be counted perfectly righteous before God simply by putting your faith in Christ and His saving work. Hallelujah. Yeah. Yeah. The name for that teaching is justification by faith. Justification meaning you are accepted by God as having met His standards for your life. His legal declaration that you are righteous, which is received solely through faith in Christ. But but the spell, the evil influence, the thing that was taking over, in the lives of the Galatians was this teaching by others who came after Paul. These people were from a Jewish background, probably professing faith in Christ, but they firmly believed that faith in Christ is not enough to be justified before God. You also need to keep God's moral commands to Israel, beginning with circumcision and obeying certain food laws and practicing certain religious holidays and so forth. We can call that teaching justification by faith plus works. Your faith in Christ plus your obedience to God's commands gives you righteous status before God. That's what the spell was. And that's what Paul's saying that is an evil influence. That spell needs to be broken. Here's something not to miss about that. What Paul is calling an evil influence, why are you bewitched, is actually the gospel that many churches preach and many Christians believe, or people that profess to be Christians that your good deeds are part of what gets you into heaven. I believed it for a long time. What could be wrong with salvation of, by faith plus your good deeds? That doesn't sound evil. That sounds even righteous. That sounds even better than just being saved by grace through faith. Why, what's wrong with adding some good works to it? That doesn't sound evil. That doesn't sound like a spell. And Paul says that's actually evil because it's not the gospel. If that's what you really believe, if that's where your hope is, if it's in you plus Jesus, but you, well, you will end up cursed. And that isn't okay. So he's preserving the real thing, faith alone in Christ alone, justification by faith. We have to bring you back to that. There's a little bit of a, something about it that we like, though, the idea that we can have our own works involved in being saved. But here's what happens. You have, to believe the gospel, you have to totally deny your own goodness. You have to, like, eliminate any idea that your works are good enough for God. Uh, one writer from the past put it this way, when you believe and come to Christ... You must leave behind you your own righteousness and bring nothing but your sin. Christ will be a pure redeemer, and you must be an undone sinner, or Christ and you will never agree. That's the humility that we have to have before God. I bring nothing to the table. I must receive it all from you. That's hearing with faith. That's the true gospel. Well, the Galatians were good with that gospel until false gospel preachers put a spell on them, saying, no, actually you need to add your own righteousness. So it's time to break the spell. Uh, It's time for an innovation. It's time for the uh, wake-up call. And we need that wake-up call ourselves because we're susceptible to putting our trust into something else. Um, We might not even know it. We might still be coming to church, praying, reading our Bibles and all this stuff. But functionally, there's still this rootedness that I I have to somehow do it too. That can creep in. So we need this teaching. So let's learn from Paul's intervention. How does he seek to turn their hearts back to the good news of justification by faith in Christ? We'll see that he does two things. First, he appeals to the passion of Jesus Christ, and by that I mean his suffering. And second, he appeals to their experience of the Holy Spirit. So, let's let's read that. Paul begins by appealing to the passion of Jesus Christ. Having called them foolish and bewitched and under an evil spell, he reminds them of the message they heard from him when he came and he preached the gospel in their cities. And here's how he describes his preaching in verse 1. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, think about the way he says that. It was before your eyes, not just your ears. Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified it's like what he's saying is i in my preaching i tried to get you to see it not just hear information but, but i wanted you to like picture with your mind's eye jesus christ hanging on a cross for you it's 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 experiential it's it's visual It reaches to the heart. He wants to put them on the scene as if they were in the crowd watching as he's hanging there and people are mocking him. So it's not just an appeal to the intellect, but to the senses, to the heart, to the emotions. Now it's true the gospel appeals to the intellect. The doctrine of justification by faith the the transaction that exchanges our sin for Christ's righteousness, that requires some hard thinking. But it's it's freeing when you understand it, but it, it requires some hard thinking. It does appeal to the intellect. It makes sense when you really get down to it. But remember this. We aren't saved by the doctrine of justification by faith. We are saved by the person who was crucified so that we could be justified. What it took to make us right with God was Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, betrayed, slandered, mocked, beaten, whipped, nailed to a cross, and hanging there for hours bearing God's wrath for your sin until he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is publicly portraying Jesus Christ as crucified. <clears throat> We're at risk of looking to something else for our hope in this life if we don't see with our eyes and feel with our hearts the loving sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us. Because intellectual assent is not enough. Knowing the doctrine of justification is not enough. We are not saved by the doctrine, we are saved by the person. And we believe in that person and what he did for us. And if we don't feel the love of that, if we don't feel the mercy of that, we will be open to something that feels better to us. A Savior that you don't love is a Savior you will not stay with if it gets hard to follow him. We have to be affected by the love, by the sacrifice, by the mercy. And know that those nail-scarred hands were for you. The reformer Martin Luther said something to this effect, that it seemed to him like the cross happened yesterday because he was keeping its memory so fresh in his mind. Other saints of old have said things like, always keep the cross in view, or live at the foot of the cross. It's just ways of saying, don't forget this, picture it with your mind-eye, Jesus Christ is crucified. Feel it. If we do that in our devotions, if we read good books that help us appreciate the passion of Christ, we won't be susceptible to other messages that say, Jesus didn't accomplish your salvation. You need your works too. Or Jesus is just a religious figure, a teacher, an example, not the exclusive way to abundant or eternal life. See, we won't be as susceptible to that thinking if we realize there's this person, this God-man who came for me, the lost sheep and saved me. Let's think of the cross a lot (laughs) for the sake of our souls, sake of our joy. If you're moved by music, listen to songs by gifted writers who publicly portray Christ as crucified in language that moves you. When I was writing this, I remembered one hymn by Isaac Watts. He said this, Alas, And and did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for sins that I had done? He groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown and love beyond degree. Listen to that stuff. (laughs) Let Christ be publicly portrayed to you and feel the love of it and you won't leave him for something else. That's the first way Paul starts to break the spell of this Jesus plus works non-gospel But he goes further, he appeals to something that the Galatians have experienced themselves. Something that they would remember, and he tries to remind them of it. It's their experience with the Holy Spirit. In verse 2 he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Now that question might seem to be coming out of left field. Uh, why are we suddenly talking about the Holy Spirit? This is the first time in the letter that Paul mentions the Holy Spirit, and he does it three times in four verses. So something's up there. <clears throat> but, but how does this topic of receiving the Spirit lead the Galatian church back to believing the gospel of justification by faith? And that works. Well, here's how we make the connection. First of all, it's a rhetorical question, where the expected answer is, we received the Spirit by hearing with faith. We received the Spirit when we believed the gospel. Paul isn't asking the question because he doesn't know. Like, when was it now? Was it after you got circumcised or was it before? He knows. It was before. (laughs) You received the Spirit when you heard the gospel with faith he wants them to remember it though that's why he's asking the question they did receive it when they believed the gospel and it happened before they were circumcised before these jewish teachers came in they didn't do any food laws they didn't keep sabbath they didn't do any of those things and yet they had the holy spirit within them so think about that galatians think about the meaning of that that this happened not by works of the law. So how does that prove justification is by faith and not by works? Well, here's the short answer. It's because only those who are justified have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Only those who are in a right relationship with God can have the Holy Spirit resident in their lives. And since that happened, apart from keeping the laws of God, it must mean that justification comes through hearing by faith and not by works of the law. That's his point. Now, this is supported by other passages in Scripture, beginning with Exodus and Leviticus and all the attention to the details of the tabernacle that was in the midst of Israel. The tabernacle was this visible place where God dwelt among His people, particularly in the Holy of Holies, the innermost chamber, and nobody could go into the presence of God without this elaborate purification process, without the blood of a sacrifice to atone for their sins. They could only come into God's presence holy, purified, sins atoned for. And then you could be in the room with God. Because God cannot dwell with sinful man. God is holy. Well, then along comes Jesus in John 14, 16 and 17, who spoke about His coming death, and He said this to His disciples, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even... The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit will be in you. In other words, Holy God, God the Spirit, will come to dwell in you, disciples. Though, you will still sin every day of the rest of your life. So how is this going to happen? Because back in the Old Testament, you couldn't have any sin. You had to have it all atoned for just to be in God's presence. So how is the Holy God going to actually live inside of you, even though you're sinning? (laughs) Here's how Jesus will become the one who justifies the ungodly. That's what Romans 4 or 5 says. Through the transaction of the cross, His holiness, His righteousness is credited to you, making it possible for God to dwell in you. Because He actually counts you legally as righteous. <laughs> That's the change. That's what the cross did for those who believe it who receive it by faith. And so, the Galatians' experience and our experience of receiving the Spirit argues for a right standing before God because He can't live within you if you're not in right standing with God. Now, it begs the question, how do you know if you've received the Spirit? What activity did Paul see in the Galatians What did they experience that would confirm the presence of God in their life? Well, he has three more questions, rhetorical questions. He highlights three activities of the Spirit. These are fruits of the Spirit of God dwelling in you. And what we're going to see as we walk through these three is that there's this amazing counterintuitive reality that those who have the Spirit by faith are really the only ones who will actually live righteous lives, because you can't do it without the Spirit. <laughs> and you can't have the Spirit except by faith. So the thing that the, the teachers are pushing on them, do the law, do the law, do the law, they have no power to do. But once you receive the Spirit by faith in Christ, the law looks good, and you say, I want to do that. And you actually do it. But I'm jumping ahead. Here's the three experiences that show a person has received the Spirit of God. Number one, the Spirit sanctifies you. By sanctifies, I mean the Spirit makes you a person who is sinning less and less and who becomes like Jesus more and more. Jesus, the perfect righteous one. This is in verse 3. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So what does he mean? Well, the comparison is between the Spirit beginning something and you finishing it, you completing it, you perfecting it. On one level, Paul is referring to what the teachers are saying. They were saying, yes, faith is a good start, but now you add your works to the whole thing. And then you'll be perfected, and then you'll be right with God. And then we've already seen that that's not the gospel. But on another level, this refers to growth in godly living, in what we call sanctification. The Spirit has taken up residence within you and is beginning something. He's beginning a transforming work of changing you into the likeness of Christ. He's the Holy Spirit, and He's going to make you holy. (laughs) He's going to rid you of sin more and more, and there's going to be this fruit, this growth in your life that looks more and more like the character of Jesus. That's what He's about. That's what He's doing. He's making your status of righteousness more and more your experience in the way you actually live. That's what the Spirit began, and it's what He will continue to do. Paul said it this way in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Like, it started... You Christian, you you real born-again person, you aren't the same as you were. You might feel worse and worse as days go by because you become more and more alert to what sin is. And so you feel like you're getting worse, but you're actually getting better. The fact that you even see your sin is change. <laughs> it's change in a good direction. And one day, he's going to bring that whole thing to completion. You're going to be actually sinless in the way you live. I guarantee it, when the day of Jesus comes, when He returns. That's the trajectory you're on. It feels like you're not on it, but it is happening. So the question that Paul is putting out there is, are you going to do the Christian life by continuing continuing to depend on the Spirit's work in you? Or are you going to continue to depend on your own ability to do God's law? Are you going to say to the Spirit, Okay, I'll take over from here. <laughs> like, you gave me a good start, and I can handle the rest. And Paul says, Oh, no, that's not going to work. That, isn't the, that is an option. Life change into the person God wants you to be doesn't happen by your own abilities to do stuff. <laughs> It comes by admitting your inability and His total ability, the Spirit's ability, and depending on the Spirit to to take me through, to make me different, to make me more like Jesus. It happens while we depend on the Spirit of God to enable us to keep God's commands and to make them look like what they are, good and acceptable and perfect. And life-giving, it's a joyful thing to do what God created us to do. So chapter 5 is going to talk more about walking by the Spirit when we get to that. There's a lot of implications for the gospel, so I'm just giving, this is just the category so far. God changes us from the inside. He changes law from you must do to I want to do. And that's the only thing that's going to work long-term sanctification the only pathway that actually works to produce godly growth in our lives is to receive the Spirit by hearing the gospel with faith because only the Spirit is the power for obedience so in every new challenge every new failure every new sin that discourages us our way forward is always repent and believe the gospel Hearing with faith, believing we're justified despite what I just did, this failure, this sin, and then looking to the helper, the helper that Jesus said, I will send him. He will be in you. And looking to that helper, okay, help me make the next step because I want to, but I don't have the power, but you do, and you live in me. So I'm going to believe that, and I'm going to do Here's what else happens when you receive the Spirit of God into your life. Here's what Paul saw in the Galatians. The Spirit comforts you in persecution. This is from verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? might not be. So based on the account of Paul's first missionary journey when he planted the Galatian churches, it's very likely that he's he's talking about suffering for the sake of the gospel here. Because on his first missionary journey he was thrown out of this town, run out of that one. They stoned him, thought they thought they stoned him to death in another one. He was getting persecuted everywhere he went in Galatia, but he planted churches there. And now they've inherited this animosity these churches. And so probably the suffering he's talking about is suffering for the sake of the gospel. And he's posing the possibility that their suffering it could in the end prove in vain if they believe this false gospel that's now coming in. If if they latch on to that and say that's my real hope, then it'll it'll show that really you didn't believe the gospel that I preached, this is the one you like. And that's, that means that everything you suffered as a Christian is in vain. It's got, there's no rewards for that. <clears throat> you, your life still ends up as if you hadn't even believed anything. So that's where he's going here. But he's not ready to conclude that their suffering is in vain. It might not be. He holds out hope and that they are the real deal that they do have the real spirit. He's seen the evidence, so he's trying to get their attention to the evidence. The suffering that they have, that they're going through, could be because they are really following in the steps of Jesus, who suffered for us. And here's the thing. One thing that the Spirit of God does... Is comfort those who suffer for the sake of the gospel. For example, in Acts 9, 30 and 31, there was a time of persecution in the church. It says, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So they're being persecuted. But they're being comforted by the Holy Spirit the whole time. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, Paul says, The God of all comfort comforts us in all our affliction. So the comfort of the Holy Spirit, God's very presence within us, has been given so that we can persevere in any trial, any tribulation. He's going to get us through. We're not alone facing these things. Even the psalmist, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He's with us. He'll get us through it. And He's not present in us because we had a good week of obedience to moral commands. You know, because I, I read my Bible plan every day this week, so He's going to comfort me. No. No, he's going to comfort us because we are righteous in Christ, and he lives within us, and he's for us. We can lean into the Spirit. We can, he will uphold us in all things as we cast our cares on the Lord and trust that what he's doing is for our ultimate good. So whatever you suffer for righteousness' sake, friends, is not in vain. Um, are you treated poorly by unbelieving family or coworkers or neighbors because of your faith? Are you making sacrifices for the church that cost you time and energy and money? Do you live with the difficult awareness that you're out of step with the culture on many things, and that it's difficult to go against the grain? The Lord would have you know that is not in vain. Walk in the fear of the Lord. And you will have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. One last way Paul saw the activity of the Spirit in the lives of the Galatians. We can expect the same thing to happen for us. The Spirit works miracles among you. He works miracles among you. This is verses 5 and 6. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here's the logic of that verse. Paul brings up the example of Abraham. Abraham, the man who receives the covenant of circumcision, back in Genesis 15, the man, the circumcision man, the guy that these these false teachers like, Abraham is our guy, let's do what God told Abraham all God's people should do. Get circumcised. So he brings up Abraham into the conversation here. And what does he say about Abraham? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham himself was justified by faith and not by works, not by circumcision. (laughs) So you false teachers who are coming in, even your guy isn't saved by works. (laughs) He was saved by faith. And Todd's going to unpack that more next week because the next chunk is all about Abraham and justification by faith. But here, Paul is simply making this connection, which is that the faith that justifies is also the faith that opens the door to the miraculous work of the Spirit in your life, in the life of the church. It's that faith that receives the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. And this is why we believe in the ongoing miraculous work of the Spirit in Sovereign Grace churches. Miracles like healing, unexplainable rescues from peril, seemingly impossible challenges overcome, that sort of thing was not limited to the times of the apostles. Um, when I was preparing for the Ethiopia Pastors College, and my, my uh, topic was the continuation of all the gifts of the Spirit. And I would read all these guys who were like going out of their way to deny that miracles still exist. I'm thinking, why? <laughs> these miracles are tied to believing faith, not to the apostles. These miracles are tied to the Holy Spirit resident within you because you heard with faith. And that happens in every generation. The Spirit has been given to us partly to do miraculous things as evidence that God is here. God is more powerful than anything in the world. And he is going to bring his kingdom. And so you read Acts and there's all these miracles, right? Right? Yeah, the apostles are doing it because it was the first 30 years of the church history. That's who was leading it. But it was only indicative of what the Holy Spirit was going to continue to do as the gospel's going forward, as Jesus builds His church. God doesn't do miracles for our entertainment. He doesn't do it on demand. He doesn't do it so we can say, hey, look at all the cool things that are happening in our church. He does it because He wants this world to know Jesus is Lord and bow their knee to Him. So that's why we believe in it, the ongoing miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. It was happening in Galatia, and Paul wasn't there while it was happening. So if you want to tie miracles to the apostles, well, Paul's saying, I saw it happening, and they are still happening. He works. He supplies the Spirit. He's working miracles, ongoing. It's still happening. It happens for us, too. We have stories. We have stories in this room of people that have been healed miraculously. It happens. We can expect God to do it. We can expect the miraculous. It's one of the things that Paul looked at and he said, you see what? You see this? The Holy Spirit is in you guys. And that didn't happen by works. It happened by faith because he justified you. Let me close. Here's what we've learned from Paul's intervention in the Galatian churches as he's trying to bring them back to the true gospel. The road to living the Christ-honoring, soul-satisfying, God-intended life doesn't run through your self-dependent accomplishment of God's moral commands. It begins with hearing with faith about the Savior who died bearing our sins so we could have his righteousness. And from there it continues through relying on the Spirit whom we have received, who is the only one who can actually complete the work of salvation that he began. So do you see why Paul calls the Galatians foolish? How foolish is it to put your hope in your own performance than in the power of God? How foolish to think it's just you and ignore the presence of God Himself and His help. We don't have to trade God's power for our works. (laughs) We shouldn't. Let's rely on His power. Received by the Spirit through faith in the risen Savior, the crucified and risen Savior. So, friends, let the burden of our righteousness remain solely on Christ, and let the power for living a godly life come from our reliance on the Spirit and not our own ability. Let's pray. There's an appeal, Lord, to other things than what we just heard. I know that because I feel it. And so, help us. Live in the freedom, the joy, the release of knowing that you are our righteousness. That's done. That's taken care of. And now we have the Spirit to live in the way that is consistent with our status with you already. This trajectory towards becoming more like Jesus, this freeing thing. I pray that you would release us more and more to do that. And we ask it in his name. Amen.